Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? I hope everyone is having a great holiday season. And happy holidays from the J. Stein Law Firm and from the Sports and Torts family. We wish you all a great last few days of the year as we close the page on 2022. This is going to be the last Sports and Torts podcast of 2022. It's been a great year at the law firm and a great year at the podcast, and I truly thank each and every one of you for your support and encouraging words about the podcast and for listening each and every week. We're going to finish this year on a high note with my friend Kevin Shires. Kevin is a defense lawyer who has his own defense firm and who specializes in defending trucking companies in injury cases. He is also just home from across the seas in the World Cup, so we get to hear about his experiences over there and some insight into how Argentina took home the title. Finally, Kevin is a fellow dog, so we talk some UGA versus OSU in the upcoming Peach Bowl and Georgia's chances of repeating as national champions. The man, the myth, the traveling legend, Mr. Kevin Shires. What is up, my man? Welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, I appreciate you being here. Um, It's not my greatest setup in terms of places we're at. We're at my new office that... uh, Let's say we're still working through some permit issues, so you're 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 a trooper for for being here in not the best of conditions. I have left the opulence of Doha for the Josh Joshua Stein office. Is Doha the place in? Uh, is it Qatar? Qatar? How do we say this? I was there about five days, and I still don't know if I have an answer for you on that one. <laughs> you're fresh home from the World Cup. That's correct. We were texting the whole time. You had a blast. Um, I appreciate you, uh, you, you, you coming right here and, and telling us your experience because people have been asking me, it's funny, like people like, Hey, on the podcast, I like, got to get some world cup talk, got to get some soccer talk. So you're the man for the job. I'll do my best. We, we will get there. Um, we are drinking some, uh, some cold Budweiser's in a, in a bottle, which is always good. Um, imported Budweiser's over in, in Qatar cutter. Uh, what are they charging for one of those? Uh, well, you know, it depends on where you're at. Uh, if you have the match hospitality tickets, they come with the expensive ticket you bought to the match. If you're at the Ritz-Carlton there um, on the Persian Gulf, um, I didn't do the rough math. I kind of hit it from the wife, but I think they, <laughs> they're running about 20 bucks a can. Holy cow, <laughs> man. I better be a good Budweiser. Well, uh, that's good stuff. We'll, we'll get to all that. But um, this is also my final podcast of 2022. So we're going we're gonna to shut this down for the holiday. Appreciate everybody listening. Um, and thank you for coming here today to do this. We're having a good time. So people that don't know you, introduce yourself a little bit. Talk about you know what you're doing and, and a little bit of that. Uh, my name's Kevin Shires. Uh, live up in South Forsyth County. Uh, originally from Texas. Uh, went to Georgia undergrad. Uh, went to uh, Cumberland for law school. Practiced in Alabama about 12 years. Been over here about 15 um, mainly represent motor carriers on the defense side of things. Yeah, I said in the introduction that you are um, you're a lawyer. Of course, you do defense work. You have your own firm. So me and you would be adversaries in a case. Um, I've had a couple people like that. You know, Edward Lindsay was here the last couple weeks ago, Robert Luskin, Jason Darnell. So, you know, I, I, I think me and you share in the, in the belief that just because we're on other opposite sides of the case, we can, we're still friends. We can still work pressure together. Cases, we still do the best job we can for our clients. But you can go about it the right way. 
you know, you use the word adversaries, but there's other ways to look at it. It's a opposing counsel looking for a just and honorable result that's fair to all litigants involved. Uh, you know, if you represent plaintiffs, they've had one of their worst days in their life in all likelihood. I've got a client that oftentimes is running a business and is facing a risk and exposure that they didn't intend. They didn't, more often than not, it was a negligent act. It wasn't anything intentional. And I feel like our collective obligations is, is to honorably and respectfully get a just resolution for all parties. And that means we can work with well with one another. And it's great to hear you say that um, because that's the way I viewed the view the job on the defense side. It's the way I, I view it now. But what do you think like led you to kind of have that philosophy in cases? Is it something that you were just born with? Is it something that your first job you kind of learned? Is it something you picked up along the way? Because you're very effective. You do a great job, but you do it in, in a good manner. So why do you think that you practice the way you do? Well, and this is one of my concerns for the profession going forward, especially as we become more digital and remote and Zoom, is I had a wonderful mentor. Uh, he taught me how to treat opposing counsel, how to be, you know, that your reputation is, is your, your gold shield that you carry with you and that how to just de- interact with others. I'd like to think I came by these personality traits naturally and, and I mean that I didn't have to be completely molded by them, but there's nothing like the mentoring in this profession of having people tell, demonstrate through deeds and actions over the course for me for seven years working for them to teach me really how to do it. Agreed. Um, doing things on Zoom, doing things on conference call, working from home, it's going to hurt the next generations coming up. Like they need to be in the office with mentors. I've told you, you know, my mentor story, you have one. We, we all do. And we have to have those to really shape the way we practice. Absolutely. Look, you know, it's important to be a young lawyer and terrified in front of a hearing in front of a judge. And, and here's the good and the bad news that if you're never if you ever get to the point where you're not nervous walking into a courtroom, you probably don't need to walk into the courtroom. You don't care about the outcome. You don't care what's going on. Agreed? Exactly. Now, you have your own firm, right? That's correct. So talk about the firm, set up, lawyers. Uh, firm is Shires, Peak, and Gottlieb. Uh, Trip uh, Peak is a, a law school classmate of mine from Birmingham. So at this point, we've known each other 30 years. Uh, I, I tease Trip. He kind of does lost, tired, and broken. Um, he has a, a whole kind of like a business a lot of contract disputes and stuff, but I'll tell you, he's one of those classic from a you know, time ago area, a, a lawyer who's kind of like one of those country lawyers who's got a lot of skills in a lot of it, different areas. And he, I'm, I'm impressed at how hard he works at making sure that he knows the law in his cases, even when it's an area he's unfamiliar with. He also does some plaintiff work. And we can't, you know, now that I've left uh, the larger defense firms, what I call the Death Stars, uh, you know, we'll take, I'll take on a plaintiff's case as long as it's conflict free, which it's a lot easier to get through than it was. Uh, and then Joe Gottlieb, I, I've been working with Joe for four years and the best I could, like, if you're buying a franchise and from like M- McDonald's, there's about a 500 page contract and a bunch of things you got to go through. And Joe Gottlieb, he's your man and he helps you with it. Yeah. Someone calls me on that. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I can't start reading through contracts I mean, and get through all that stuff. Four years later and it still looks Greek to me. Um, seeing anything he has on the printer. You mentioned doing trucking work, or maybe I mentioned doing trucking work, but that is, is that like the, the, the vast majority of the kind of cases that you handle? About 90%. So when, when I say that, people that are lawyers understand that, but, but for the person listening that's not kind of in our space, what, what kind of cases is that? Who are your clients? Um, I mean, I do work. So it's kind of a mishmash. I do work for uh, Bimbo Bakeries, which if you... When I say clients, you don't have the specific clients, but just the types of clients. Um, I 
the types of clients I work are large motor carriers, um, you know, that you, if you drive up and down 75 and 85 in the downtown connector, you will probably recognize their trucks. They're all, you know, footprint throughout the entire United States. Some of the work I do is for um, motor carriers with maybe two or three trucks. They're just operating in Georgia, small family business, and they get their insurance through, uh, you know, they're an insurance company and I get hired to represent them. Um, it's a different experience representing the large motor carriers versus the small mom and pop shops, as I call them. The large motor carriers are simply more sophisticated. They got safety directors and the whole kit and caboodle. They have, uh, you know, but is the, the, the industry, the motor carrier industry is it complete, continues to advance. For example, now, you don't keep paper logs for your hours of service. It all has to be digitally entered. So even the mom and pop businesses have to keep up with the technology. You mentioned the Death Star, the big firms they used to work for, started out with. Is that how you got introduced to trucking work? That was the case you were handling? Or is that just something that you knew early on, what kind of case you wanted to be involved with? I got uh, my, my mentor. Um, we did a ton of railroad work. And there's the intermodal side of railroad work, which is if you've ever been driving down the interstate and you see all the trailers on the back of, uh, stacked up on the back of a train. Well, eventually what they're doing is they're dragging all those trailers to a terminus and then trucks will come and drive them to points, you know, unknown all over the place. So even by doing the railroad work, I started getting in the trucking work and I realized there was a much bigger industry in the trucking industry, uh, than there was just in the railroad stuff. Um, and the, candidly, the railroad business was quite competitive. Uh, when you're defending a trucking case with a motor carrier, with a big trucking company, how's that different than defending a case where someone's in a Honda Accord and has, you know, personal liability insurance they get in a wreck? What, what are the differences from the defense side that kind of when you approach a case? Well, I mean, on a truck, there's simply so many more moving parts. There's the documents, like when you have a, you know, Joe versus Joe auto case, right? The guy, the defendant in that case, does not have hours of service logs. He may have the maintenance records on his truck, but the document production is de minimis. Um, by the time you get, like, they call them black boxes in the society, but they have what's called ECMs on trucks. Depending upon the nature of the accident, you go out there and do an inspection, download it, and it removes a lot of the mystery of what happened because you get speed, braking, throttle, uh in wheel angle, you can almost plot that truck along the roadway prior to an accident that it's involved in. So you've got electronic stuff you're dealing with. You've got the data. Most of them have positional data. Um, you know, there's McLeod, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, there was one out in San Diego I forget about. But basically, there's a lot of different uh, document production. And then Trucks have all these federal motor carrier requirements uh, in, the, in the, what's called the Code of Federal Regulations that uh, you got to make sure are not problems. And if there are problems, you got to figure out how to deal with how them. How to deal with them, sure. Um, and then the organizations that you'd be involved in, you know, like these these national organizations, DRI, CLM, I imagine that you, you have participation. Like they have their own trucking kind of. They have subgroups. subgroups, and is that where you spend your time with CE, education, CLEs? 
marketing, networking, is that a big part of what you do? When I go to any conferences, I basically, there's something called TIDA, which is a trucking industry defense association. They got an annual conference, and then there's kind of like a, a listserv that we won't share with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the the secrets and tips. All the dirty secrets. All the dirty secrets. All the stuff about Joshua Stein. When you see him um, on a case, don't pay him. <laughs> and uh, so I go to those conferences because that's where my industry folks are at. That's where, you know, sometimes lawyers can be the best referral sources because, uh, you know, guy and in, in Minnesota who knows you well and gets to know you and he's got a client with a case in Georgia because trucks are all over the United States. It's a great referral source for getting business and maintaining good relationships. How have you looked at marketing over the years? Because we've talked about it before. It's like the business of law and practicing law are two different things, but you got to be good at both of them if you want to be successful like you have been, like you've been able to be and have your own firm. So how have you viewed how you approach marketing to try to get these carriers to hire you? I have, um, that's kind of twofold. So, First of all, I'm a strong believer in the fact that we're all engaged in marketing. Like you're always selling yourself. When you're handling a case for a client, you're selling yourself for the future of that work and demonstrating your abilities. Um, you know, you've got to, you've got to nurture relationships. It's no different than life itself. You have to let them know that you're important to them. Um, but the one thing that I've always like, Every lawyer can go to a potential client and say, I'm a great lawyer. I mean, nobody says I suck, right? So how do you differentiate yourself? The way I've always differentiated myself is I try to find commonalities between me and the person I'm marketing to. What makes us both click? What what commonalities do we have? Because they're going to remember, like one of my better clients is up in Philadelphia and he's a huge Eagles fan. Well, I grew up in Dallas, Texas and a huge Cowboys fan, but we get to rib each other over it. And, and they don't want to talk their business all the time. They want to have somebody that they, you know, with the first five minutes of the phone call, you can shoot the breeze, catch up, get along, and then you can get into the business at hand. Send them a text message on a Sunday during the Eagles Giants game or Eagles, excuse me, Cowboys game and go back and forth. Like that's so valuable. Yeah. You know, my brother was on here a couple weeks ago and he told me that, that he learned a lot about his clients during zoom uh, meetings because you could see behind them, like what their interests were guitars or a picture of the Eagles, whatever it is. And it's, it's finding a way to relate Saying about marketing. I think one thing about it that's important to mention is to enjoy it, right? Like I enjoy doing it. I like being with people, going to events, sporting events, being creative about it. I get the sense that you're the same way. You have to be an outgoing person. And uh, I think I already mentioned my wife said I could talk the paying off the wall. So I've never met many strangers. You know, one thing is, is I have three brothers and two sisters. So it's not like I was able to sit around the house and, and peace and solitude. It was always an active environment of having siblings around. You mentioned Dallas. We're going to take a little detour for a second. Cowboys going to make it this year? Am I here every year? It's like, here we go. What's, what's the word? I am not that guy. I just, look, when I see Dak Prescott, I mean, I like the guy. I like the backstory. I like the charisma. But the guy just doesn't strike me as a winner in the NFL. I mean, it's just, just a certain amount. You just have to have that certain DNA that Brady has. And Jalen Hurst has right now. So your, your, your friend up in Philly is uh... – And we play them Friday night, you know, so way to ruin the Christmas Eve. Yeah, there we go. Well, all right, back to some law stuff. I do want to talk some sports, but a little more law stuff. Um, In trucking cases, we hear a lot about these 24-7 response teams, the ability to get out, like, right away with a wreck. So, like, evidence is fresh, information is able to gather. Like, is that something that you get involved in? I do. I do that for my clients. I mean, like, you know, one notable case is – 
and, and this is about, you know, taking the empathetic approach to handling cases. So I got a case, my client calls me, um, like at four in the afternoon says we'd had an accident three hours ago over in Alabama. I'm like, look, I got nothing tomorrow. I'll get an, I'll get a recon guy. We'll go over. Supposedly the driver is saying nothing I could do. They crossed right into my lane of traffic. You know, nope. I get over there. The zero point where that accident clearly happened was my guy had crossed the center line and it was kind of on a bridge near Gunnersville. So like these poor guys could not go anywhere. They literally got run over by a truck. And, you know, having that information within 24 hours of knowing that, you know, this isn't defensible, that we need to engage these people, find out how they're doing, uh, if they're represented, you know, and they usually get represented quickly, then we need to reach out to these people. I'm, I'm not doing my client any favors by hard litigating a case that simply has a value to settle at some point. So when you get out there and you learn that, your role is to to tell them, hey, this is what the facts are showing. This is what we're dealing with. We're, we don't have a defense. So there's a different kind of goal for that situation, yeah. right? As opposed to, hey, this is a defensible case. This is da, da, da. So one of your roles, I imagine, is as early as you can determine like which direction is this case going to go. Every decision I think I've made as a lawyer the, the quality of that decision has always been or can be measured by how much information I had available to me. And making informed decisions, and I don't think anybody would really disagree with that, informed decisions are better decisions. Yeah, the more information we have, we can, because, you know, I'm sure your clients say, well, what are the chance of this happening or chance of that happening? If we go to trial, what kind of result are we looking at? And, like, you don't have a crystal ball. Right, you can't predict exactly what's going to happen, but the more information you have, you're armed with giving them a better analysis of what the you mentioned the word risk earlier. Yeah, what the risk is to do certain things. And you know, let's flip that fact scenario around. Let's say I didn't go out there, and let's say we waited a month, you know, to find out where the accident happened. What happens if we couldn't have gotten that evidence? And I was selling a case, you know, that it's not our fault when it clearly is. I'm not. That information allows me to inform my client of the, you know, and one thing I've learned in this profession is, is particularly on the defense side, it's the bad news business. I mean, they, they, they can handle bad news. They just don't like surprises. Bad news has to be delivered when you learn it, right? I mean, it, it, like you said, surprises or, or a change of analysis when the facts haven't changed. That's what I always kind of, like, like something better have changed in what's going on for you to completely do a 180 on what the like you said, what the suggestions are, right? I, I immediately share bad news. As I've always said, it, it, it ain't like wine. It does not age well. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. I'm going to steal that one from you. Absolutely. So, so trial is, is an option. I mean, we know the majority of these cases settle. Trucking cases, they probably do go to trial potentially more than just regular ones because of reasons we can discuss. But like, what is your approach when you look at a case and you say, okay, we've exhausted the efforts getting resolved. For every reason, this is one that yeah, we're gonna have to go see what a jury what a jury says. I mean, ultimately, I think from you know, here's one of the advantages I think the defense has. We can always settle a case. There's always a sum of money that you, as a plaintiff, probably have to take in your in you and your client's best interest, right? So I think we have, if we're doing our job well, the defense has probably a greater luxury of choosing what cases to try. Oftentimes. Um, the two most common cases I end up trying are just an, an, an incredible disagreement on liability. Because 
if you've got really significant damages and, and on the one hand you don't think you're liable, on the other hand they think they're going to drill you, it's just you're, the, the gulf gets too wide. Um, the other is just, just where the damages sought are so extravagant that it makes it, you know, I'm about to try a case uh, in early March. It's, it's infinitely easy to choose to try the case because, I mean, I'll have to quit the profession if I get tattooed for the last demand. Like, I will suck that bad. Well, knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, don't, I, I hope you don't suck that bad. Um, so any, any good trial stories, any good things you can remember? There is a good trial story. This, I was trying a case over in Cobb County and actually was not a trucking case. And it, it's the importance of learning lessons and being able to laugh at yourself. So it was a fire loss case, and I was asking this guy who was like the last guy to look at this fireplace. It was a gas fireplace before it just burned down like a $4 million home in the country club of the South. And I I just, I was like in front of this mock fireplace, and I squatted down to like ask him. I know you can see you're laughing. Like, well, did you get down and look at it like this? And then there was just awful ripping sound. And the inseam of my my suit pants split down the middle. And so I go to the lectern, and then my associates like stop grabbing at it. You're just making, making it, worse. it worse. And then the the worst is they go to a break, you know, because it's right before lunch. And the judge Judge Darden goes, "Are you okay, Mr. Shires?" And I'm like, "I'm okay. I just gotta." do something with my suit. He's like, what's the matter with you? New pair of trousers. Well, he goes, what's the matter with your suit? I'm like, hang on a second. What do you think just happened? He's like, I think you farted. And I was like, oh my God. I don't know what's worse. Yeah. I said, can I get a curative instruction? And he's like, I'm not touching that. And so I call my wife and I'm like, honey, this is just one of those 10 moments in our marriage. You have got to bring me a suit right now. And so uh, she got down to the Cobb County Courthouse and two wheels, you know, and peeling. I changed in the, uh, the, in the ante room, and uh, I began the afternoon of the trial, and I just told the jury, new uniform. So the reason why I'm laughing, um, I actually knew that story, not because you've told it to me, but I do very little. Everything on this podcast, nothing's scripted. I mean, we haven't gone over what the questions were going to be. Um, but I do like to ask friends of people on the podcast any, you know, kind of funny things I can ask people about. When Rob Hammers was on the podcast a couple months ago, I asked you things about Rob, and you told me what he said to you when he was being interviewed. Yes. Which, can you confirm that's a true story that, that he told? That's a true story. All right. So I, I, I called Rob this morning. I said, Kevin's coming over. You know, what you got? And he told me a few things, and he said, you got to ask him about splitting his pants in trial. <laughs> so you just walked right into it, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you said a funny story, that's about as good as I can offer. I can tell you this. So every time I go try a case, there is an extra suit sitting and hanging in the back of my car now. So word word to whoever listens, put a suit in the car. Did, did you win the case? Uh, well, the last offer I made was 1.1 million. I got hit for 1.15. So that means you evaluate it correctly, right? You knew what the value was. Rarely do you hit a number that close. So we, we touch a little bit about your approach to the litigation process and, and working with other lawyers, but in the trucking space, I imagine you see a lot of the same lawyers time and time again, Yes. right? So, um, a couple of different questions. Do, do you see that the, the lawyers handling those kind of cases are higher caliber do they have to have more skill? Are they more like nuanced and focused on trucking cases? Number one, and number two, you know, do do you 
do you get benefit by treating each other well because you know you see the same people time and time again? A, a lot of that, uh, all of the above, and the the I have grown to like dealing with the same like. It's not that I want to deal with all the same lawyers. I love meeting new people, but the lawyers that I've dealt with on a regular basis, like they know if it's a head-on collision, whether or not my taillight is functioning has no proximate cause to the accident. And so they're not trying to make a big deal out of it. And it's not a motion in limine fight because that's not relevant to how that accident happened. The, the other vehicle was not going to see our taillight until we fully drove over them and passed them, right? And so those guys don't fight the losing arguments. They fight the winning arguments. Um, so it, it, you, get to, you get to the substance a lot faster with the, the guys I deal with regularly. Um, you know, sometimes I deal with lawyers that are, are very, you know, they, they – they think they finally got a trucking case, and it's like an oh my god, it's a home run. And it, those are the difficult cases because they're out there thinking that just automatically it's a trucking case. It doesn't matter what the injuries are; they're getting just oodles of money. And I think some of the guys you might have had on the podcast—I mean, like Rob—will tell you, you know, having a trucking a corporate defendant that's a trucking company that that's valuable for the plaintiff's column. But you still have to bring liability and damages to the table. You still have to have a story to tell. You just can't like unveil the fa- unveil the fact that we're a trucking company and all and this is over. It, yeah, it's, it's just over. over. It's, I mean, it's so true. I mean, in my younger days, I thought it was an advantage to have a less experienced attorney on the other side. Now I've completely flipped that script. Like I want someone like you, someone that gets it, that is that is great at the job, that understands the issues. You can just cut right through all the BS. You know, like that. That's what that's what I like to see. Um, an example, and this hasn't been brought up yet today, but me and you met because you were a registered agent for a defendant that we sued. Yes, and and. You know, I asked about you and everybody's like, oh, great guy, you know, all those, all those, you know, good things. And so I'm like, I got to serve this guy with a lawsuit. <laughs> like, that's not really the way I like to meet people. Like, I like to meet people over a Budweiser, not like, hey, you've been served. You know, like, oh, no, just give him a call. So we called you, Andy Golders in that case, yes. you'll remember. And um, we said, look, man, Kevin, uh, we're suing your client. You're the registered agent. We have to serve you with these papers, but we're going to do it like at a restaurant. <laughs> you know, and 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 you're like, sweet, it, uh, no problem at all. Uh, you know, I blame Andy for that emotional trauma, not you. He <laughs> <laughs> said you're going to sue us for PTSD, but exactly. I, I think that we at least bought you lunch, right? Absolutely. Look, and I love Joey D's Oak Room. I mean, sue <laughs> sue me again, <laughs> or serve me again. Hey, yeah, we 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 we, we run into that client again. We definitely will. So, well, um, that comes that doesn't that kind of dovetail onto the point of. Why not? Like, I acknowledge service all the time. Why, why, why not? What's the point? And what you mean by that is, people that are listening, is like, to start a lawsuit, we have to formally serve them with papers. Sure. A sheriff or an investigator or whatever. And that starts the case. But there's also the option, if you know who the lawyer is, to acknowledge it, which is just skip all the BS of having to have a sheriff come out and go through all this and just say, here are the papers. Do you acknowledge that this is proper service on behalf of your client? And I can't think of a good reason other than maybe a statute is like on the doorsteps of happening that people want to make it harder. But like, why would someone not just say, yeah, sure, I acknowledge it? Yeah, I don't understand. I mean, well, look at it. Here's my viewpoint. If the first act in a case that I have with you and I haven't worked with you before is me being agreeable and, and cooperative, 
isn't that a great way to start as opposed to good luck, pound sand? I mean, you know, I'm going to probably need a favor down the line. I mean, and even if I don't need it in that case, I may need it in the next one or the one after that. Yeah, it, 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 that, that kind of attitude just carries itself throughout the whole case from both sides. And so I, I completely agree with you. Um, well, I want to I want to make sure we get a lot of stuff in. So we're okay. going to transition to um, some non-lawyer stuff. Um, not that what we're saying isn't good, but we, we got a few more things to hit. Um, your world travel is epic in terms of places you go for sports. So like for, for the sports part of this podcast, you have gone to some places most recently. Are we saying Cutter? Is that what we're going to say, Cutter? Let's go with Cutter. We're going to go with Cutter. All right, so you just got back. Um, World Cup is something that is on your list every four years. Like, no questions asked, you're going to be there. I will be at the World Cup in the United States. Uh, I'm probably so if you're listening to this and you're opposing counsel, and in four years you see that I have like a month and a half long leave of absence, you know why. So, why is it? Are you a soccer guy? Are you just a culture guy? Are you like to be in the mix guy? Like, what is it? There's two things. First, I will suffer. No naysayers. It is the most amazing. It is truly the World Cup. It is the greatest championship in the world. It is. Look at what they're celebrating today by the millions down in, in Buenos Aires. Some Argentina. of those pictures that are being seen. I mean, I, I didn't know that many people exist in the world, much less on one street that can come out. Exactly. And that doesn't that speak to the volume of, of the how important. And, you know, when we say like, you know, the Patriots win a world championship. They're they're not world champions. They won. They were the top team in a league that plays in the United States, and we're only three or four percent of the world's population. They're not world champions. I mean, I'm sure there's like the world champions of cricket, but the passion that you see from every corner of this planet to win the World Cup, it's unparalleled. What's the first one that you went to? Uh, Brazil. That was how many years ago? Uh, eight years. Four, no, yeah, eight years ago. And then four years ago was Russia. I'm guessing you didn't go to that one. Uh, is evident is subsequent events would uh, lay out. Now Russia was fine as a World Cup, but my misgivings of going to Russia seem valid as we sit here today. Good decision. Good call. All right. So you arrived in Qatar. We're saying Qatar. What part of the tournament? We went to the first knockout rounds, what's called the round of 16, so after the group stages. U.S. versus Netherlands, first match you went to. First match I went to. All right. Talk, walk us through, you know, getting there, where you're staying, the setup. Everybody watch this. Like, give the visual for them of what your experience was. So the, the getting there was quite trying because you can only get into uh, Qatar, Qatar on Qatar, Qatar Airways or Qatar Airways. And from like Atlanta, it was 3,000 round trip. And then moreover, like I only had tickets for four days straight of matches. Tickets to the actual match. Two tickets to the actual match. They will, you got to leave the country basically within, I think, 36 or 48 hours of the, your last match. You're, you get something called a Hyatt card that's your visa. And you got to leave once you're done seeing matches. How, so, so how was that policed? You give that you submit like your itinerary and you submit your badges or tickets to the event, and then they say, Okay, you got to be out by this certain day. So, kind of like the Olympics, there's a whole organizing committee for Qatar, uh, you know, FIFA World Cup, right? And they all have these things called a HIA card, H A Y Y A, and it's on your phone. 
And I had to submit to them proof of my match tickets, proof of my lodging that I, we stayed at the Ritz there. It's called the Shark, S-H-A-R-Q, Village Ritz-Carlton on the Persian Gulf. And I had to show them proof of lodging and proof of my tickets so that I could have a visa to enter the country. The Haya was the visa. And that's how I was able to enter the country and how I had to, you know, I wasn't going to challenge them on whether or not I was going to leave on time. You were going to leave on time. <laughs> yeah. Is it hard to get tickets? Like, do you, is it a ticket master? Like, if I wanted to go to the match, how do I do it? Uh, so FIFA has a series of lotteries, right? Um, and so I, I didn't do the lotteries because I wanted to see the U.S. play. It was kind of like when the U.S. Uh, was playing that last game against the Iranians. You were like, they might not make it. I was in fear of because I bought – they were in Group B, so I brought bought 1B and 2B tickets, okay, so that I knew I was going to see the U.S. if they got through. But if they lost the Iranians, I would have been at, like, a match watching Iran play the Netherlands. That would have been a bummer, you know, but that's the risk I was willing to take. So you can buy tickets on FIFA but early on, but you're buying tickets not knowing who's in what group, right? So I waited. We bought from what's called Match Hospitality. And this is where the Qataris, I will give them credit, they, they turned their tournament into a cash cow for themselves. I'm not going to share publicly how much I was paying per ticket, <laughs> but I will say it did help that I was purchasing them over the course of a year. Because uh, what I did is I bought my tickets to the first match and my last match, which enabled me to then stay in Qatar that whole time. Then we later decided what matches we were going to in between. That's why like, I kept teasing you guys Showing, you know, sending a picture of my Budweiser. I'm like, yeah, and the normal people in the stands can't drink a Bud, but I can. Yeah, that's why we're drinking Budweiser today. I was inspired by the pictures that you sent. So, I mean, is it what's what's the food like in the in the stadium in the matches? I mean, y'all y'all had a spread, but is that throughout the entire place? No, but I mean, if you think about it, a soccer match is 45 minutes of extra time, 15 minutes, 45 minutes in extra time. Yeah, I mean. It's not the kind of sport like a football game that goes three and a half hours where you're going to go out and get a bunch of concessions. Um, you know, we were able to go into like the clubs or the lounges, as they called them, three hours before a match. So we'd get there, you know, if the match was at six o'clock in Doha, we'd get there at three. Um, the public transportation was all free, but with the Hyatt card on your phone. And so we would get there, hang out, eat food, eat lunch, you know, dinner, whatever, depending on the game. So the Ritz is the Ritz. I mean, is it nice as can be? I mean, lives up, up the standards of the flag? I mean, look, I'll say that's probably one of the cleanest, nicest places I've ever been to. As a that whole, hotel, that whole, that whole country, the whole city. The Ritz was amazing. And Doha's, I mean, you could eat. Literally at night, we saw people scraping, like, grime off the sidewalks. What about the people? Do you, I mean, the, the locals. Interesting people. I mean, you know, a lot of, I will say this, the Qataris were all wonderfully, extremely polite. But, I mean, the way they've constructed their society is, is they don't work. Like, I sat next to this guy during one match. Hey, you piqued my interest. Tell me more. And he's like, um, I, I said, you speak really good English. And he's like, well, I, I studied in Liverpool. I've got a, a bachelor's and a master's in aeronautical engineering. And I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. You're an aeronautical engineer. And he goes, oh, no, I don't work. <laughs> Go on. And so, I mean, basically, there's lots. I mean, you know, what you read is all true. There's tons of people in the country. You know, what I saw predominantly from India, Pakistan, and Nepal, 
who are there working, and then the Qataris, and they're like vampires. They don't get up till like two in the afternoon. They kind of like had their first meal in a hookah, you know, not tobacco hookah. Yeah. And then like, because it's so hot. I mean, this was December and it was 85, 90 degrees. So I couldn't imagine the temperature in the worst part, you know, the summer months, which is why the World Cup was moved towards the winter. And so they spend most of their time up at night. Do you feel pretty safe the whole time? Very. Incredibly safe. And then in terms of getting around, you said free transportation, that was never a problem. How, what's the size of, like, hotel to venues for matches? Is it hard to get around? I mean, that's one of the things that really made this World Cup so interesting. Is like when I went to Brazil, I went to see the U.S. play Portugal and we up in the Amazon. And we stayed down outside of Rio. So I had to catch a four-hour flight to go see that match and then a four-hour flight back. Almost everything was in Doha. I, like, there was one night I went to see the Japan-Croatia match. And then afterwards, I went to the next match. We bought tickets on a, a ticket exchange and went to see Brazil and Korea. How many? You ended up going to five, three or four or five? Went to five Five, matches. five. Okay, did you see ten different countries or there some yes. teams you saw twice? Ten different countries. All right, so let's just start with, with the U.S. versus Netherlands. What was the U.S. presence like? We were there loud and proud. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, Compa- I mean, you saw my picture. I was... Uh, I was we were we were decked out and people were taking tons of photographs. With yeah, us. everybody was red, white, and blue. You were you were you looked great. Um, similar to Brazil when you were there eight years ago, U.S. does a good job of showing up. We show out. Our soccer fans are passionate. We're football fans. Football. Football. And then afterwards, after the match, um, is there like bars or gatherings? How do people get together? So in the match hospitality, you can hang out another hour afterwards. You can go get a drink and a bite to eat. We would do that occasionally unless we were going to that next match. Um, more often than not, what we did is we would just go back to our hotel. There are no bars in what you think of as bars in the United States. There's no – the only – you can drink alcohol in designated areas. In other words, the Ritz-Carlton is an international hotel where you can drink alcohol. But you're not walking off that property with a beer in your hand if you got any common sense. And it's not like walking off from uh, a bar in downtown Athens on like Clayton Street and worrying about getting a ticket. I imagine that what you would get for doing that is much more severe punishment. Don't want to know. Don't want to know. What's the food situation like? Food was amazing. Really good. Um, like my wife and I have traveled to Morocco before, and so we've done a lot of the authentic Middle Eastern style food. You know, it's unique to the Arab world. And, uh, very good. Um, so the the U.S. versus Netherlands match, uh, Netherlands was better than us. They were bigger. They were stronger. What what is what does U.S. have to do for in four years from now to have a better showing? Well, the first thing is is I mean I feel like we got outcoached and outplayed a little. Like the Netherlands only had three shots on goal that were all easy goals. They basically let us kind of beat our heads against them on an attack. And they just waited for the counterattack. If you understand, what I mean is, is you know, you can get too far up on the pitch trying to score, such that if you make a bad pass, next thing you know, they're racing down the field with even you know four on four or even worse four on three, and they did that to us repeatedly. And it was, it became obvious that was their strategy, is just to, to see if we would beat our heads against them trying to attack too aggressively, and then we'd pay for it. Right. They go up one nothing. Then they go up two nothing, right? And we got a goal. Yeah, at two nothing, does it feel like the air is kind of out of the sail? Because that's a tough. It was a little deflating. I mean, yeah. two nothing's like you know, 
It's I, a de- I, it's decisive. And I think I texted you. I'm like, we need a three run homer here. You know, <laughs> we, we, we need something quick to come. All right. So you saw ten different countries uh, compete, interact, and I imagine with at least ten different countries, uh, you know, population. Give me the tail of tape. Like, what country was was awesome to kind of hang with? What country like, eh? Well, and this will touch on some of your one of your early questions. Like, why do I go to the World Cup? Well, I mean, I do like the sport. It's all the people of all the different nationalities that I meet. Like, there was a couple from Mexico who got bounced out in the group stage that we sat next to who was there on their honeymoon. And they were in their Mexican gear and, like, loud and proud wearing those sombreros. But they were at the Japan-Croatia match. But they were there because they loved the game. And what was so amazing, what, what I have found so amazing about the World Cup is, is you realize that people from all around the world are not as different as you'd like to think they are. Everybody, especially in an environment like that, they just want to be happy and enjoy themselves and enjoy a sporting event, a game. I mean, I sat next to a couple of Iranians, wonderful people. I mean, they, you know, you, you remove it all. We met a ton of Russians. And they, they didn't start a war. <laughs> That's right. So, and, and you're, I don't know if we talked about this earlier today or, or, or some other time, but like the World Cup is important for you as well as World Travel is important for you because you like to kind of marry big sporting events with just seeing other parts of the world. Absolutely. So like, for example, you, you stayed and went to what Istanbul for a few days afterwards. We flew, we flew from Atlanta to Paris to Istanbul. That's when we got on Qatar airways and flew into Qatar. Well, I wasn't going to fly 35, 40 hours each way just to spend five days over there. So we went to Istanbul for five days. And then Brazil, same thing. I kind of saw some other parts of the country. Absolutely. Spent like two weeks there and saw like four matches. And then I know you went to Monaco as well in 2022. Um, it's been a good year. You went for the Formula One race, is that right? That's correct. Again, I mean, are you a big race guy, or you just like to, again, go to these great places and see cool things and take your wife and both? I mean, we we bought tickets to watch it from a yacht in the harbor, right? So we're sitting there on a yacht. The cars are literally screaming around a corner, like 20 yards away at most, and it's just amazing the people watching you get past the, the the racing the people watching in monaco for the formula one race is like it's better than a state fair in the united states it's, 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 it's not a nascar race in alabama no i don't like know. i said because you live you lived in alabama for a while so you know. I, I know the difference <laughs> you know the difference and so in you know from my wife and i's perspective i go to monaco we're there for two or three days in nice going to the race having a blast then we went to corsica and sardinia for a whole week drove around so we mix the adventure i mean i really just went on two trips i went to the world cup in doha and like did all that sporting events but then we we went saw all of istanbul which you know two thumbs up seal of approval for me what about this year what else you got coming up uh we're looking at going to japan um for a couple weeks we're gonna try to do wimbledon that's I, i owe my wife like, I've done the Formula One race in the World Cup. I think I'm going to have to yield on Wimbledon. She's big into tennis. Wimbledon is high, high, high up on my list. Me and my brother talk about it all the time, go to Wimbledon. And um, then we are planning on going to the Singapore Grand Prix, which is at night. Which, And they have bands. like after, They had Green Day this year after the race. So, so we're having a theme of, uh, of the Grand Prix races this year, huh? Well, I mean, and we're going to Vegas for the, the, the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix. Love it. So how many countries have you been to? Jeez. Um, Top of your head. I bet you it's more than 50. Is that something you've always been involved, always enjoyed world travel, international, go wherever you can go? Love it. 
And I mean, and I think I made this comment to you when we were texting is, you know, it's easy to go down to 30A. I mean, I used to go down there all the time. We had a house down there and it's easy to, when you go to Europe, just to go to Rome and, and Paris and London, right? And because you, you're putting yourself out a little, but it's a comfort level, right? You know, my belief is, is for it truly to be interesting, it, you almost need to be slightly uncomfortable. That's exactly right. Your, your, your comment was just that. You're like, whatever time of night it was, you're, you're like, you got to be a little bit uncomfortable to make this trip worthwhile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, You ever found yourself in a foxhole where you're like, oh, God. No, because one thing I do, I mean, like, you know, with the Internet these days, my wife and I plan all our trips out. She's really good at finding the restaurants. I kind of find the hotels, wrap it around. It's kind of a collaborative effort. And, you know, there's so many blogs now with people sharing their experiences. That what I've learned, if you listen to 10, if you read 10 different blogs, they're usually going to, you're usually going to find out what to do, what not to do, the restaurants to go to, the best areas to stay. Because, um, I mean, people are sharing their experiences left and right. Internet is such a wealth of it. You can find whatever you want, and you spend the time to do it, you can end up in the good places. So good for you. I want to do a little, real quick, I forgot on the World Cup, I want to get your opinion on Argentina-France match, which is amazing. I'm not a soccer guy. I couldn't turn it off. I was into, I was into this event, but it was, it was so good. So tell us, um, Argentina, like what made them the champions this year? Well, Lionel Messi, but I mean, you know, they're not without a good supporting cast. It's it's probably unfair to the rest of the Argentinian team to just think it's Lionel Messi and a bunch of guys trying to play a supporting role. I mean, it's like Michael Jordan had Pippen, and I forget, uh, you know, I'm forgetting off the top of my head some of those players, but they're all in the, they're in the Premier League. I mean, these guys aren't just playing on some Argentinian club team until they get the call up to the World Cup. What makes Messi Messi? He's probably got one of the strongest legs in history. I mean, you go back and look at like a, a YouTube video of ten of his greatest goals, and it's just like he hits it so freaking hard. And he's not that big of a guy. You made a comment before um, that he doesn't really he doesn't exert energy, doesn't have to, right? He just kind of saves it for that moment. Is that one of his? Yeah, and, and one thing I've noticed, you know, the South American and the European teams have basically dominated the World Cup and the international soccer right the european teams are very methodical like if you see the comment about spain is it's death by a thousand passes like they're very the european teams by and large are very methodical the south american teams i mean look at the brazilians it's like the flamenco you know they're they're always the striker like neymar it's all about that just explosive strike well you know turning to messi they say that he walks 75 80 percent of the match but when he gets the ball, he's got the energy and he's ready to deliver. And he delivered on the stage. I mean, give him credit. Can you imagine what his life's been like the last couple of days? Pretty good. Can you imagine what Argentina has been like the last couple of days? Well, I, I saw that his uh, Instagram post celebrating the World Cup has now received the most likes in the history of Instagram. Oh, it is it breaking like records? 62 million as of yesterday. How about that one Argentinian fan female that took her top off in the in the in the, in the match celebrating? You see that? I hope she made it home. I don't think she has. <laughs> she probably hasn't. <laughs> I don't think that the 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 folks of Qatar look very highly on that. Yeah, you know, but I think that they realized they invited the world to town. They, you know, I think they pulled, like on the Budweiser decision, pulling that at the last minute, I think they intended to do that the whole time. They didn't want a bunch of people drinking beer in the stadiums. But, you know, 
they were they were good hosts. I never I can sit here and confidently tell you that every Qatari I met was was kind, gentle. You know, because they're showing off their country and want you to like it. I mean, it, it's kind of like inviting the whole world over for dinner. Did you hang out with some Argentinians over there? Oh yeah, were they, they pretty, were they pretty confident about their 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 chance of success? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the look the, until the Brazilians lost too. You know, the Brazilians and Argentinians, they show out in force, and they are always not lacking for confidence. What about the French? Not lacking in confidence either. I mean, the French, look, I mean. Defending champs. Defending champs, and you can't say that they didn't come really close to getting another. So Mbappe, for me, was the one who jumped off the page. I mean, he, he had a hat trick in the World Cup final. Insane. So what is his secret? It's like, what is he doing that's just different than everybody else? Well, I mean, if you notice during that match, the, the final, how so many times when he got the ball, he was able to beat somebody off the dribble. I mean, think it's kind of like when, in thinking basketball terms, which is a sport I think most Americans are more familiar with. By and large, it's kind of hard to get around the defender if he's equally fast as you when you're dribbling the ball because you're dribbling the ball and all he's trying to do is keep up with you. But Mbappe is so good at his ball handling. It, and, and just has a spatial awareness that he can just do things in that space, similar to Messi. I mean, I think Messi is clearly now the GOAT of all time. Has to be, right? And I think Mbappe will probably take over that reign before he's done. Mbappe's what, early 20s? He's got three more World Cups in him. And he, did he end up with a golden boot this year? I don't know. Right, right with him and Messi right next to each other. So uh, Mbappe's got some, a lot more time to, to do his thing. How about Ronaldo? Is he still in the game? Is he... Is he in that same category as those other two? I mean, look, Cristiano Ronaldo has no shame either in his checking account or his accomplishments as a player. He's been wildly successful. But, you know, you saw him crying after that match when he lost to Morocco because, you know, these guys want that World Cup. Morocco, we text about this too, Morocco is who I was rooting for. Well, everybody, everybody loves the underdog. Everybody loves their story. Talk about that. Well, we were watching those the uh, the quarterfinals in Turkey in Istanbul, and I can tell you the whole Arab world had their backs. I mean, they were all cheering for Morocco. And help me, what a great story it is! I mean, just a you know a nation, an, an African nation without a long legacy of success in soccer. I mean, they knocked out the whole of the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal. They got. I feel like they had the whole support of every everybody that wasn't from Brazil or from Argentina or from one of those. Like, got to root for Morocco. Yeah, that's the underdog. I mean, we're Americans. We love the underdog. So Istanbul, cool city. I've never been over there. Amazing. I was uh, first of all like the U.S. dollar, and maybe it's temporary, but I think it's more of a long term. I mean, it's just a common thing. Like, I've been to Rome before and paid $20 for a Heineken, right? And I was like, well, this better taste good. Um, <laughs> we went and ate a dinner there that was just an amazing. Well, we went with another couple, so there's four of us. We had appetizers, salads, whole, you know, kit and caboodle, two bottles of wine. It was like 180 bucks. Okay, so the dollar's strong over there. Very strong. Okay, well, so we did some good shopping. All right. And, and my walk away was the, uh, the people in Turkey are just wonderful people. How long would you need in Istanbul to properly do it? You need four full days. Three or four. We had we got in on a Wednesday morning and we left on Sunday, so we had three and a half. All right, well, add it to y'all's list. The U.S. dollar is very strong there. All right, we're going to do one more transition from European football to American football. 
your other passion. You got your Georgia National Championship quarter zip on. You were there in Indy last year. Um, we got a big game coming up next week, UGA, Ohio State, Peach Bowl. What you got? I began 2022 with a wonderful win in Indianapolis. I've sandwiched a, a Formula One race and a World Cup, and I'm hoping I'm closing it out next Saturday or Saturday after next with a, a win over the uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes. If so, put that in context for how great of a 2022 sporting year that would be for you. I got to be honest; that's going to be really hard. <laughs> it's be hard to, pull to off. beat. Well, we can maybe beat. the U.S. World Cup when I'm gone from the practice of law for a month and a half. We'll we'll see what happens then. All right. So let's say let's say this game ends after midnight which with tv it very well could 2023 could live up to that if we win another natty in la we are ready i've got my tickets booked i mean i'm I'm not trying to jinx it or anything but you know you got to do some good planning so did the committee get it right with georgia well obviously georgia's gonna be one all along but they put michigan two tcu three ohio state four do they get three and four right you can argue both ways you can argue that tcu such a lawyer answer well, I mean, you can say that TCU, um, I would say they got it right for this. Is TCU lost, what, in the last second? or Because I was already out of the country when that game They lost in overtime. Uh, it was either in overtime or the very last They second. lost in the last second or overtime in their conference championship. Ohio State got trucked at home by their biggest rival. I mean, they got trucked. And, but they only had one loss. And... You know, I've I've looked at this fourteen playoff, and I realized college football's it, it was always about money, but now it's really, really about, about money. money. Yeah. And that's why they're going to twelve teams because you can't. You know, you got teams in the in the Pac ten who you know or Pac twelve now, and the ACC they don't want to miss out on that money. Those are big paydays just because the television contracts are absurd. The reality is this year there was two teams that deserved to be in the playoff. Georgia, Michigan, and now next year we're going to go to 12. I get it. Don't love it. But I do think on balance Ohio State was going to be four. Some, a lot of my friends are worried that Ohio State's the most, quote, talented team out there and that Georgia got screwed because we're playing them first. I say whatever. Well, Bring then, them on. If you're going to win a title, it's not like you can dodge a fight. Got to go through them anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, you know, we might get the uh, the luxury of beating the crap out of two Big Ten teams. Well, that'd be great. Shake the whole Big Ten. Down. <laughs> you know? So as you as you handicap this game, um, what parts of it are you kind of paying attention to? Is there something that Ohio State does that you're, you know, going to say, hey, that's going to Im- impact the outcome of the game? So Marvin Harrison Jr. is a great receiver, and we've got a great cornerback in Keely Ringo. Ooh. And, I mean, you saw what Keeley did to Jalen Hyatt, right, in Tennessee. I mean, he, he caught that interception where he was practically the receiver. If you can put Keeley on Marvin Harrison and, just, I mean, and Kirby can say, just go do what you do. Get your first-round money because you know you're done after this year. Go cover this guy and get your money. You know, then how much does that free up the rest of our defense? Because there's the other Ohio State receiver. Who, He's out. He ducked out. They He's got out. a running back who's ducked out. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I I can't say I sit around and watch Ohio State games, but when I C.J. Stroud, if he's not if it's not clicking, he can make mistakes. Um, you know, look, I was the biggest Stetson Bennett naysayer. I mean, I thought he, but I can't argue with the facts now. The man is a winner. He is a winner and a leader. Yeah, and I don't think he makes those mistakes. Yeah, I'd rather have I'd rather have Stetson than C.J. Stroud. Stetson is the big is the best big game quarterback in the country in the last two years. He's, he's proven that. And it, it is. I mean, I think any Georgia fan that is that is questioning Stetson Bennett at this point <laughs> needs their head examined. I, I, like, I get it. Last year, like 
I even get it beginning parts of this year, maybe, but uh, he's going to go down as like the second best player in Georgia football history. One A, one B with Herschel Walker. That's just I how think, it's going to be. I think I look, and I mean, you know, most players only play three years if they're that great, and you know, you only get four if you really before we had COVID and all that, right? Where they could play six years. But I think if I looked it up, there's only two quarterbacks in history who won two titles, besides what Stetson's on the verge of accomplishing. And I think he, he, he may end up going down as one of the greatest records as a starter. I mean, at some point in time, you can't measure heart. And I know it's so cliche and easy to say, but the guy delivers. He's the mailman. It's and unbelievable. He's the, he's the milkman now. He's the he milkman was, now. He was the mailman. Now he's the milkman. Well, and here's another thing, and only Georgia fans are, are happy watching this, but if I, you know, if what I saw in that Michigan-Ohio State game is what Ohio State's run defense looks like, uh, Milton, McIntosh, Dejon Edwards, and, and Robinson, you know, I think all Georgia fans would be if, – if you told them that you're going to win the game – but you got to watch those four guys run the ball 40 times. We'd all be like, good, done, fine. Done and done. Yep. And I think Kirby's just been kind of plodding along a little bit the last couple, like into the season, just kind of saving some, up, some, some, saving some stuff up. He knew these were the two games to let it all loose. I think we've got plenty of gas left in the tank. You mentioned the four running backs. I think they're a huge difference. I mean, I just – I go back to watching Georgia play Michigan last year. That game was over. Two minutes into the game, like it was, it was, it was, it was no question. If you watched those lines of scrimmage and you watched, you know, our speed and our size, like it was over. And I just can't imagine the gap has shrunk that much between us and those teams, especially the Michigan, as you said, as you pointed out, demolished Ohio State a couple weeks ago. And what are they going to do about Jalen Carter? The same thing that everybody else, no answers. I mean, when you can double and triple team, and then all you done, all you've done is. is decided on who else is going to like sack you instead of Jalen. If there was if the Heisman trophy was truly about the best player, most impactful player, like that's your Heisman trophy winner. Absolutely. He changes every single play. Um they put three guys on him and they still can't stop him. I mean, I would I I feel bad for the offensive opposing offensive coordinators at times. There, there's there's just no answer. So you got to score for the game. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think we know that we got a score. I think we get in the thirties. You know, let's say thirty-six to twenty. I mean, I have, that the, the one thing that I think Georgia has to be mindful of is is you you got to keep your foot on the gas. It's, you know, like the Tennessee game, we had all that rain and we just really strung out the end. You know, this is indoor on turf. Ohio State down fourteen is not dead. Agreed. Foot on the gas. What do you think the uh, makeup of the fans are going to be? Ohio State going to bring bring some uh, bring some fans down here? Oh, yeah, they'll be here. I mean, I, I think because of the, the the game being in Atlanta, I think that Georgia will probably because there's the Legacy Peach Bowl tickets that will all go to Georgia fans. So you'll probably see sixty, sixty five, but forty, thirty five. That's all I was thinking. I was thinking probably two to one. I think it's gonna be a hard uh, a hard act to pull off Ohio State to get that place fifty fifty. But um, I mean, Georgia, like Georgia fans, continue to show they're going to show up. You know, they're going to do all these games. You've already booked your flight to Los Angeles. I have too. I hate having to do that, but that's just how it works. I mean, you can't wait until I guess I get the a night of or the day after. Out. I guess I get a refund. I don't know, but hopefully, we will all be in Los Angeles um, come the first week of January. It's a great place to be. I mean, you went to Georgia. You know. So did I. I mean, we, we've been through three or four different coaching, you know, staffs, and I mean, what a it's just unbelievable to say the program we have right now. It, it, you know, and 
in that first title that Kirby got, it felt so good. I mean, there, there's accusations that there was moisture in my eyes as Keeley ran down the field, right? Uh, I call them vicious lies. Uh, but There were uh, tears in my eyes. I, I, I'm not quite uh, as proud, I guess. I'll admit it. My wife photographed me, and so I'm already compromised. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's nice to see Kirby's hungry and the, and the team's hunger. You know, when he said, we're not going to be hunted, we're still the hunter. And I think what he's trying to prove, and I mean, look, you know, kudos to Nick Saban, the GOAT of all coaches in college football. There's no – and Kirby's got a heck of a lot of work to do to ever get mentioned in that same breath. But what I'm impressed by is, is he is trying to create a genuine program. This isn't like a let's come in one year and see if we can grab a title. He's he's in for the long haul. He really is, and God bless him. I just couldn't imagine how exhausting that job must be. See the new house he just bought in Athens? There's some perks to it, but... but But think about it. He's in the middle of bowl preparation, and he's got signing day tomorrow. I agree. It's a grind. I mean, he's working 18, 19 hours a day. The whole staff's probably sitting there at Buttsmere nonstop trying to get these recruits in. And it's it's Christmas. I mean, it's a holiday season, and... He, it's what the twentieth. So tomorrow he's going to sign these kids on the twenty first. I mean, he's probably going to have to tell his wife every day. But Christmas Day, I'm I've got to go to the office. There's a story that I heard um, about Nick Saban and Kirby Smart when Saban when when Kirby was on his staff and uh, Saban called Kirby and called all the all the coaches at about about ten o'clock on Christmas Day and said, "You've had your two hours at home." I'm going to give you till noon, spend time with your family on Christmas morning. But at noon, you're back at the facility in your mind. And I don't say that to say Saban's a bad guy. Um, I say that to, to echo your point, which is like these guys work nonstop. And they deserve what they get. And Kirby has made so many people so happy in the state and all across the country. So thank God we have them. Well, I mean, yeah, think of the dynamics of all that they've got to do. I mean, they're the CEO of a large corporation. I mean, a football team, you know, you got 85 scholarship players, all the coaches. I mean, he's got probably 100. I mean, now they've got all these quality control analysis. There's probably 250 people associated directly with the University of Georgia football team. It's awesome. Go dogs. Go dogs. Kevin, this was great. I enjoy every minute of this. Knew it would. We bounced. We could have done a, a whole podcast on any of these individual topics. Absolutely. Maybe we'll come back and do it again, and we'll just focus on one. But I'm, I'm glad we hit them all. This is great. So, People that uh, listening want to want to find you. If there's a, a trucking company executive out there that hears us, like that's my guy. <laughs> um, t- website, social media stuff. Where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm not on Instagram. Uh, I, my website is spgattorneys.com. If you want to ever reach out, shoot me an email, and uh, you can get it there on the website. And I'm on the Facebooks, uh, and you can. Find me, track me down there, and I'll happily befriend anybody. The, the Insta-Face? I love the, it. The Insta-Face. All right, man. Well, thanks for, for, for putting up with the conditions we have today. Um, you're a good man. Thanks for having it. me in. Yeah, thank you all for listening out there all year long. Uh, 2022 is a good year for the podcast. We'll keep it going in 2023. If you're not already, please please take a minute. Give us a five-star rating. What that does is it allows us to spread the word, get, get great guests like Kevin here more often. And uh, again, we, we truly appreciate y'all give, giving us the hour to listen. So see y'all in 2023. Go dogs! And as always, keep chopping. Go dogs! Go dogs! <laughs>